There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. In 209 BC, Philippemon helped turn the Aegean League into an important military power in Greece. And through a biographical tribute by Plutarch, Philippemon's vision to end the chaos and anarchy that consumed his homeland was preserved for posterity. All Greece, wrote Plutarch, loved Philippemon wonderfully, and as his glory grew, his power increased. And one of the Romans, to praise him, calls him the last of the Greeks, as if after him Greece had produced no great man, nor who deserved the name of Greek. Philippemon's efforts to raise an army to defend his countrymen from the all-conquering powers of Sparta, Macedon and Rome are now the subject of a new novel. In this edition of Historical Fiction, Tristan Hughes speaks to Christian Cameron, author of The Last Greek, about how Philippemon attempted to restore the glory of the former Greek Empire. This is Historical Fiction. Christian, great to have you on the show. Great to be here, Tristan, and thanks for having me. You've written the story about one of the coolest Greeks in ancient history. I'm so glad you think so. So tell me, first of all, who was the last Greek? The last Greek is Philippimen of Aegea, and uh, Plutarch gave him that name, Plutarch being a Roman who wrote using sources we both have and don't have, histories of many famous Greeks, and in some ways comparing them to Romans. And he wrote a biography of Philippemon in which he quotes one of the Roman generals as referring to him as the last Greek. He doesn't mean he was the last Greek. He means he was the last Greek of the stature of Aristides or Cimon or Pericles or the Greeks that, frankly, most of us have heard of. So this is a Greece, I'm guessing, long after the likes of Neotiades, Alexander the Great, Cimon and the rest. Yes. And I think sometimes even those of us who love ancient Greece can get a little bit of what I call back in the day syndrome, where, you know, the classical world, the ancient world, it's sort of one cohesive thing, but it wasn't. It wasn't any more a cohesive thing than our world today. So the world in which Philippemon grew up is a radically different world. And just across a fairly narrow band of water, Hannibal and the Romans are fighting to the death. And in giant military campaigns with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of men and women in the field. And here in Greece, we have battles between 5,000, 6,000. I'm pretty sure Flaminius referred to the wars in Greece as the battles of mice, because they were so small by comparison. But first of all, any great 18th century 
Republican, small r Republican, would have known the name of Philippeman, whether it was George Washington in the United States or Edmund Burke in England. Philippeman invented the idea of federal democratic government. Or if he didn't invent it, he made it work in a way that it hadn't worked. And his success in that sort of rang down the ages for a long time. And I would argue that only our relative lack of philosophical slash historical education has lost us Philippeman from the mainstream. Because as I say, to educated 18th century men and women, he would have been more of a household name, I think, than he is now. Was it important in the book to emphasize the internal enemies Philippeman faces? They basically exiled him for military successes as much as the exterior enemies he faced in the likes of Sparta and other Greek states. I really wanted to cover off the difficulties of faction and alliance warfare and how complex federal life was, because it still is. To me, it's a very modern thing. And when we write about ancient Rome in historical novels, it's Rome, and you've got the emperor or the senate, and they give orders, and we sort of assume that everyone obeys them, although I have my doubts. Achaea never worked that way. And Achaea had uh, almost no central bureaucracy, while Macedon already had a whole palace devoted to scribes. When you look at the face of it, it seems impossible that Achaea managed to struggle at all. It's sort of like Libya deciding to hold out against the United States of America. But at the same time, some parts of it really worked. And one of the things that worked were these were fairly rich cities. And when they would cooperate, they could provide the tax base to raise an army. And also to build roads and do other things that we think of the Romans doing, to build theaters, to build really all of the city of Megalopolis, which is a pretty impressive achievement. And you can still go there and see just how impressive it all is. For Philippinum to do this military rejuvenation over here, what sort of allies does he have in order to see through this remilitarization, as it were? Well, he has no allies that he can particularly trust, but maybe that's the normal world. And one of the most fascinating periods in history to me, perhaps because I grew up here in North America, is the so-called French and Indian War, the Guerre de Sept Ans, how powerful the Iroquois Confederacy remained right up until France was ejected from North America. And that's because the Confederacy was expert at playing the British and French against each other to get what they needed and to survive. At some sort of meta level, in writing this novel, I am trying to explain to the reader that as long as Macedon and Rome and Carthage are locked in a sort of three-sided superpower war, Achaea is both endangered and empowered. And as long as the government of Achaea understands how to play off the major players for troops and free suits of armor and training, Achaea can remain independent and reasonably free. But as soon as the players start to get knocked down and Rome grows in prominence, Kia has no real hope of surviving independently. And I'll add, although it's not a major part of my novel, that Athens seems to have realized this before Achaea. Athens in some ways does a better job with its diplomacy of remaining prosperous and not constantly at war while Achaea goes down a different, more militaristic path. And I try and show that a little through the eyes of Fiale, the courtesan and top girl of Athens. While she's a made-up character, she represents real group of people. And I get to show how Athenian diplomacy works. And Rhodes was a minor power, but one that Rome had respected from the very beginning and made use of and is a fairly reliable ally for Achaea in the long run. And then in the much shorter run, 
in a sort of heroic and military way, the Cretan cities that formed the Cretan League that Philippemen had formed, they provide reliable auxiliaries throughout Philippemen's wars right up until he's in his 80s. There are still Cretans coming to fight for Ithia. He's fighting until his 80s? Yes. Philippemen is possibly the most heroic person I've ever run across, or maybe the daftest. He basically dies not quite in combat. He dies of the wounds he takes in combat, and I think he was 84. I mean, just to live that long is insane, and for a warrior as well. Yes, and pretty much constantly in the saddle over his entire life. Further on, just from reading your book, was that idea also, as you said, that it seems like sooner or later, Ahir will have to pick a side between Macedon and Rome in the war that we know is coming. Yeah, and this is where history is sort of bounded. If it was a fantasy novel, Philippemen would, in the end, pull off some amazing feat and keep Rome at arm's length and keep Macedon at arm's length and little Achaea would be free, but that's not how it works in the real world. And in the end, fairly remarkably for the way it started, Philippemen chose Rome. He backed Rome and his followers backed Rome until the other faction won long after Philippemen's death, betrayed Rome and got conquered in like 45 seconds. In a superb example, by the way, of a narcissistic idiot telling himself stories about his own power when everyone around him said, the Romans are going to eat us alive. You understand, if we go to war with Rome, we're doomed. Look at Macedon. They didn't last five minutes, and we are not Macedon. Despite all of this, the Donald Trump of Achaea in the 140s decided he could go it alone against Rome and lasted, I don't know, four minutes or something. It's terrible to be stupid. Having these characters from these various states in Greece, you also mentioned Crete, Macedonia, Rhodes, did you also really want to emphasize the fractured nature of the land in the third century BC? There was no united Greece, as it were. Yes, that is not only an excellent question, but one that has directly to do with what I'm writing right now, because right now I'm writing the 50 years, the period between the end of the Persian Wars and the beginning of the Peloponnesian War. I'm afraid one of the things I've decided that the world of classical history hasn't done a good job of is to, I guess, reject the historiography of modern Greece and accept that there never was a Greece. I feel like modern classical history is deeply tainted by something else I love, which is the Philhellenic movement, especially in England in the 19th century. Hey, I love Greece too. I mean, I really do. I love modern Greece. I love going there. I love the people. I think it's a fabulous country. But there's a sort of giant mythical lie, which is fine. The United States has theirs, and Canada has theirs, and England has theirs. We all have mythological lies. But that they're the descendant of a polity from the ancient world that was great. Well, part of that's true. They're a descendant of 55 polities from the ancient world that were great. But they were never Greece. We are reasoning from like one day at Salamis and one day at Plataea that there was Greek unity. And I believe those were the exceptions, not the norms. And that was as true in Philippemen's time as it was in the time of the Persian Wars, when there was some sort of massive external threat. Greeks could sometimes unify. They didn't unify against the Romans. And when there wasn't an external threat, they were very happy to fight amongst themselves. And going back to that epigraphic evidence, some of the most interesting and really horrifying epigraphic evidence of this period we're talking about, this sort of late Hellenistic period, is the tiny wars between very small towns, sort of the equivalent of English countryside towns, population 30,000 free people, 
and they're putting out armies of 1,000 men and going and fighting the next town. It's like a soccer match with death on the line over boundary disputes and runaway slaves. It's in a way insane. And you can understand why when the Romans came, for all that I badmouth the Romans, with law and sort of the rule of law, even if it was harsh, I think the farmers probably all said, that's awesome. I'm never going to have to fight those bastards from the next town over, over whether the stones on the boundary line got moved again. I mean, is that something that the Achaean League finds difficulties with? That ingrained part of ancient Greek culture of almost to hate thy neighbour? Yes. I'm not even sure I did enough to bring out how much the towns hate each other. There are rivalries that are already literally a thousand years old in Achaea when the Achaean League is put together. So these are terrible tensions that are not easily gotten over. And some of them have to do with religious differences. You know, every town in Greece has a different coinage, a different calendar, a different set of religious festivals. Just imagine that every town in England had a different calendar. So you say to somebody, I'll meet you on the 4th of April. And they're like, what's April? When is that? Tell me that based on the Feast of Athena. And you go like, oh, well, the Feast of Athena, that's on the 19th of April. And they go like, oh, we don't have a spring festival of Athena. Can you imagine trying to plan a military operation where you don't have the same names for months? These internal troubles really come to the fore alongside the external troubles of city-states such as Sparta and the rest. And I'll just talk about Sparta quickly. This Sparta is a very different Sparta to the one that we know in popular culture of 300 of Thermopylae. It's much weaker. Yes, I have a lot to say about Sparta. I don't know if you know the name Mike Cole, but I'm a big fan of Mike Cole. And Mike is about to finish a book called The Bronze Lie about how Sparta basically never was what you think it was. I've believed that for 30 years. I'm glad Mike is writing the book. I'm not writing it, but I'm not a big fan of Sparta in a number of ways, and yet I am. I think that the same things that caused men like Hemon and Aristides in Athens to respect Sparta were respectable. They had a good thing, but the thing that we have modernized, this sort of military fascist state, one, I'm not sure that's ever the way Sparta was, and two, it's certainly not something I approve of. So let's just start with that. The image of Sparta may not even be accurate, the 300 image. But there's been some really good academic research in the last 20 years on the agoge, the training of youth, and careful examination of records, most of which are from the Roman era, but which have included in them good data from the past. And there's one particular book which traces all the changes in the agoge from the earliest records. And these are changes in the festival calendar of the agoge, the training, and the contests that graduates were expected to go through. And what they indicate was that there was never a steady state of what Sparta was. Because what we believe from Xenophon, for example, is that the agoge made the Spartans, right? That the training of the youth makes those superb soldiers. And so when you realize that the agoge was fiddled with constantly every generation, then you begin to have doubts about this invincible stability that we see as Sparta. And you start to say like, oh, it's like medieval chivalry, something else I study. They're always going like, ah, oh, 40 years ago, it was perfect. 
back in my dad's day, those were when they were really knights. And it turns out that Sparta, so even the Spartans who lose at Thermopylae and then win at Plataea are going like, ah, oh, well, the real Spartans were about 100 years ago, right? I have to give this preamble before I talk about Sparta in the time of Achaea because Cleomenes, who we see at the beginning of the first book trying to take on Macedon, is literally a reenactor. He grows up in Sparta, surrounded by the signs of greatness of the past, and he wants to recreate Sparta. And he goes about it very intelligently. He recreates the Ogoge, which had been basically done away with. They'd stopped having the Ogoge about 270 BC. And they had some of the ceremonies, and that's all they had. And Cleomenes not only reinvents it, but basically requires them to put him through parts of it so that he can say he's done the Ogoge. And by the way, it is possible that Cleomenes Agoge, which is well-remembered in Roman times and about which we know some stuff, may actually have been tougher than the ancient classic or archaic Agoge. It's as if people were trying to recreate American Ranger School or SAS training 500 years from now based on Hollywood movies. And they went like, well, they swam through a pit full of sharks. No. They didn't do that, right? But you get what I'm saying. And so the recreation of the Ogoge, for all that I'm joking about it, creates some really top-notch new Spartiates. I also have to say that when you get down to numbers of soldiers, it's possible that Livy is full of lies and that there aren't really hundreds of thousands of men in Rome and Carthage fighting each other to the death on the plains of Italy, it's possible the armies aren't a ton larger than the armies that are fighting in Achaea. And I just want to raise that very small heretical flag because we know a fair amount about the actual numbers those Spartans were putting out in Cleomenes' time. And here's little Sparta, a postage stamp nobody cares about, able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Macedon. And that shouldn't have been possible. And Cleomenes, at least according to Plutarch, and I'm going to take Plutarch's word for it, Cleomenes intended to reconquer the whole of the Peloponnese and recreate the Peloponnesian League. And had he done so, Plutarch asserts, he'd have had the manpower to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Rome or Macedon. That's a thing. And I would suggest, I have not written this into the novel, that one possible explanation for Philippemen is that Philippemen says, because he hated Cleomenes, you can do it, I can do it. I'm going to take Sparta, and I'm going to recreate the Peloponnesian League, but with Megalopolis at the center. And then we'll be able to take on Rome. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. 
The actions of Philippemon, full of courage and forward to assert his country's liberty against the Romans, have something yet greater and nobler in them. For it is not as hard a task to gratify the indigent and distressed as to bear up against and to dare to incur the anger of the powerful. Even in speculations on military subjects, it was his habit to neglect maps and diagrams and to put the theorems to practical proof on the ground itself. He would be exercising his thoughts and considering as he travelled and arguing with those about him of the difficulties of steep or broken ground, what might happen at rivers, ditches or mountain passes, in marching, in close or in open, in this or in that particular form of battle. The truth is he indeed took an immoderate pleasure in military operations and in warfare, to which he devoted himself as the special means for exercising all sorts of virtue and utterly condemned those who were not soldiers as drones and useless in the Commonwealth. And I think what neither one of them understood and what Philip of Macedon didn't understand is that what they think is a big army, I'm thinking of Macedon here, Macedon thinks 25,000 men is a big army. And Hannibal clearly had this problem too. They have no concept that the Romans can put out 25,000 men, lose the whole army, put out another 25,000 men, lose the whole army, put out another 20, like how many men do they have? They clearly had a population base vastly arithmetically greater than the whole population base of Carthage or Iberia or Greece, and no one got that. Anyway, all of which is to say, legitimately but incorrectly, Cleomenes thought he was a main player, not a bit player. He thought that he was inheriting the history of a great nation, and that on that basis and with the population available to him, he could recreate a great power, not a minor power, and sort of be king of Greece. I'm making that title up. And I think that while he could never have pulled it off, because you and I know that Rome could put 60 legions in the field out of Italy, no one else at the time knew that either. So everything I've described so far, I haven't even mentioned the Antigonids or the Seleucids or the Ptolemies, all of whom are treated by everyone, including Rome, as if they're major powers until it turns out they're all paper tigers and none of them can put out more than one major field army. Whereas Rome, just like, oh, well, lost another one. Get me two more consuls. And as you say, hindsight is just such a beautiful thing, isn't it? For ancient historians, for people wanting to write historical fiction novels in ancient Greece, to be able to see the differences in how, I'll say the ancient Greeks, and I'll include the Macedonians in that, and the ancient Romans, the similarities and the differences when they start to clash at the end of the third century BC. Yeah, it's very popular to talk about the technological superiority of the Roman legion over the Macedonian phalanx. I don't see that at all. And in fact, I think you really have to bend the evidence to see that. And as a person who does all kinds of historical martial arts and has done a fair amount of experimenting, we live in a technological era. We know that fighter jets are superior to biplanes. And we sort of design our military tactics and strategies around achieving technological superiorities that keep our soldiers and air persons alive. But that's not necessarily true in the ancient world. And sometimes I think we fool ourselves that a longer pike or a shorter pike or a gladius or whatever has the sort of technological knock-on that we see in our own time period. And so one of the things that I have 
suggested in other places is, again, that hindsight, we know the Romans are going to win. But do the Romans win because the Roman legionary is so great? Or do the Romans win because they have a bottomless pit of eager young farm boys? And I have one of the main characters say this, but I believe that Philip of Macedon knew it perfectly well. Philip knows that the field army that he takes to Sinocephali is all he's got. We know it's all he's got because he's got to fight the Illyrians, the Romans, and his own Thracian hill tribes all at the same time, and he keeps marching that one army back and forth to do it. The Romans have sent two legions, and there's like 45 more legions where those come from, and then they've got penal legions and marine legions, and it's never a contest. So that when a war gamer looks at Sinocephali and goes like, there it is, it's all on the line, Macedon versus Rome, a politician would look at that and go like, no, this is like Custer's last stand. This is a greasy grass where even if the Lakota Sioux triumph today, they're doomed because there's 20 more 7th Cavalries where that one came from, and they've got Maxim guns. It's never going to end. There's always going to be more cavalry. There's not always going to be more Lakota Sioux. That's what I see when I see Macedon taking on Rome. I see greasy grass and go like, yep, you could have won once for one day. And one of the points of the last Greek, which I think is often passed over, is that if you read your Plutarch and you read your Polybius, you will see that for several years, Roman attempts to defeat Achaea, they're very careful. Polybius doesn't want to offend the Romans, and Plutarch doesn't like talking about Roman military defeats. But gosh, there's an awful lot of landings on the north coast of Achaea that fail. And at least one, what looks like major field action where the Romans get their butts kicked, and the Romans had to ask for peace with Philip of Macedon in the early part of the war because he beat them every time, and none of those defeats are even remembered. They're gone. And we know nothing about them, because Roman historians don't talk about military defeat. I don't think that the Roman army was necessarily superior. I just think it was endless. Let's quickly talk about your background in reenactments. How has featuring in reenactments, how much has it helped you in writing this novel, The Last Greek? There's two parts of reenacting that have utterly changed how I view the ancient world and especially ancient warfare. The banal one, which is nonetheless fundamental, is food and culture. Reenacting, and I've never been able to reenact Hellenistic Greece. I have reenacted late archaic, early classical. But handling the pottery, using it every day for a week, making the fires the way they made fires and cooking the food. And granted, that's not what Philippemon does. That's what some slave does. But the look of it, the smell of it, a long time ago, one of my best friends, who is a lifelong reenactor of cavalry warfare, uh, I asked him when I was writing an earlier novel, if you had to tell me one thing about an ancient Scythian camp, what would you say? And he said, well, most people who haven't lived with horses don't know how loud horses are eating grass at night. But if you have a huge horse herd, all you're going to hear all night long is And later on in reenacting, I was doing a little cavalry work in American Revolution, and I was camped next to the horses. And yep, that is really true. And I'm sorry, but that kind of detail adds validity and adds believability. So there's the living part of living history. It's super useful. How do you sleep without a tent? You know, most of these ancient armies didn't walk around with camp equipage. So what does a camp look like? Where'd the food come from? Fascinatingly, ancient Greek armies simply hired farmers to bring food in, and every day they'd have a market. And they'd just walk in, take their pay, and buy their food, and their slaves would cook it. It's not very modern, and it's not much of a logistic system. And if you've terrified the farmers and they don't show up to sell you the food, 
you're screwed. Anyway, all of that reenacting helps with. But from a military battle writing standpoint, the thing that I think changed me as a writer is understanding how ancient command and control works. So I have commanded 2,000 reenactors with nothing but a messenger system and horses. I was on horseback. Some of my officers were on horseback. We weren't doing ancient Greek. We were actually the British in the American Revolution. Unimportant because pre-modern communications and command and control systems, they're socially based and they're based on how fast a person can ride a horse, but they're also based on trust systems and social systems. Being a reenactor made me understand why Wellington only wanted people from his own circle as his messengers because he needed to know that they would take his message, not some garbled message. And of course, if everybody comes from an exactly similar educational background, it's much easier to transmit orders orally. So if you think about all those Spartiates who've been through the Agoge, they all know exactly what each other means. They've hunted together all their lives. They've danced together. So a few words can sum up a complicated situation. And between strangers or people who don't speak a language particularly well, all of a sudden, none of that exists. And if you imagine the Persian army at Plataea speaking 60 languages, and you imagine just getting them into line and how hard that would be. The first time we reenacted the Battle of Marathon, I think we only had 88 reenactors. They were from nine countries. We had six different languages, and we finally settled, believe it or not, on ancient Greek as our order-giving system because every group had somebody who could understand ancient Greek, but every group didn't have somebody who could understand English, French, German, or Italian, or Australian English, whole other world. And that was a real lesson too. So I would say I could talk about weapons and armor, and I have learned a lot about weapons and armor from reenacting, but it's really what it's like to try and keep 2,000 people in a line, in a formation, change formations, have a new idea, respond to a threat, all while it's me and four friends on horseback trying to direct all these people. You mentioned how different towns have these different cultural singularities, things associated with those specific communities. This must be something Philip Herman encounters and struggles and has to overcome when he's recruiting this new cavalry force. Yes, I think the ideal sword and sandals historical novel is first we build the team, then we win the victory. And I think one of the things that attracted me to writing about Philip Heman is that he really did that. It's not like a made-up story about a lower middle-class man rising to somehow form the right team of 95th Rifles. This really happened. He had to build the army with which he then had to win the victories. And I had a great deal of fun writing that all the team building, all the trying to get the different polities and the putting the politics in so that it isn't all just military training, super fun. Is there anything that you want readers of The Last Greek to take away above all else? When I set out to write the book, the biggest story in the world was Syria. We were all watching a modern, modestly successful state ripped to pieces by superpowers having their way and just shaking Syria to pieces in the process. And in that, I saw a distant reflection a distant mirror, as Barbara Tuchman says, of what happened to Achia. And then when I started writing, Donald Trump had become president. And I saw a world in which truth 
began to take on a different meaning. And that also impacted because the greatness of democracy is that it is the best method we've come up with so far of allowing widespread participation in the very thorny, incredibly difficult process of governing. But the terror of democracy is that if you cannot agree on what the truth is, you can go down blind alley after blind alley until the Romans come and knock you over. And if there's a single thread to the books about Philippemon, it's how carefully he avoided making himself a tyrant, how often he was right and yet chose as other great people. Uh, George Washington comes to mind. George Washington literally refused to be king and retired so that all the other ones would retire, so that everyone would get the message that you just didn't stay in power, which Philippemon also did. And I guess that's the lesson, that true greatness is leading but not tyrannizing, that truth has absolute value, especially when the Romans come. The book is called? The book is called The Last Greek. It's the sequel to The New Achilles. And who knows, someday there might be another one. I'm going to write about William Marshall for a while, but I would love to go back to Philippine. Thanks very much, Christian. Thank you, Tristan. Historical Fiction. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.